0: I'm Joe Davis, I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, and hopefully, you... how's the sound on this one, Ronnie, is it alright? Okay, great. Alright, uh, we're gonna, we're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark, this is week 40, I've entitled this one, Prophetic Obsession. Prophetic Obsession. So before we get started, I'm going to give you a definition. It's a word called Eschatology the part of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world of humankind, including death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul of all humankind. So very light-hearted kind of stuff, right? Eschatology. It's one of the most intriguing subjects for many people as it relates to the Bible. We want to know what the Bible says about what's going to happen, right? I mean, if there was one book... In the Bible that you could have complete, full, perfect understanding, what would it be? My guess is you would say, I would love to understand the book of Revelation perfectly, or maybe the book of Daniel. See, we all have some sort of eschatology, even if we don't realize it, even if we don't want to admit it, and this eschatology has a big impact on how we view the world. When I was young, The eschatology that I was obsessed with was this theology that actually did not even exist until about 1850. It was called the rapture. Did you know that nobody taught the rapture in church history until about 1850? It's the rapture, in case some of you don't know what it is, it's that glorious moment when Jesus is supposed to take Christians out of this world before all hell breaks loose in the tribulation. And I was convinced the rapture was coming... And I was constantly looking for for the prophetic signs, things going on in the world, to confirm that it was near and I had the right stuff in my head. And I processed every world event through this prism of waiting for the rapture, looking for missing pieces to affirm my understanding of prophecy. Now, if I still believe in the rapture today, a year like 2020 would have been like a smorgasbord of prophecy signs. Pandemics market collapse, Tom Brady signing with the Bucks, all kind of incredible signs. See, the rapture, the reason it was so compelling is it actually says that it would spare Christians the horrible suffering of the seven years of tribulation at the hands of a one-world government that hated Jesus. And then, after the seven years, at the very last moment, as Jerusalem is about to fall to the forces of evil... Jesus returns and kicks butt, sets up a new thousand-year reign with us on earth, and then after all that, he throws Satan into hell. Well, who wouldn't want to be on that side, right? And as Christians, what I believed is we escaped all the suffering, and we had a front-row seat to watch all of this unfold from heaven. I love that. Count me in on rapture. And I became obsessed with this idea. I watched all the Left Behind series and read all the books and and looked at all the preachers that talked about the prophecies. Well, you know, the disciples had a prophetic obsession as well, a a prophecy of promised escape from suffering, and it all centered around this idea of a return of Elijah, who was supposed to, in quotes, restore all things. So let's look at our passage today. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. This is the transfiguration. We talked about it last week. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say Elijah must first come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So we like to look at each passage in three applications. First, the history. I want to talk about a messianic jigsaw puzzle. The first thing I want you to see, Jesus says, keep it quiet. I mean, they just had this unbelievable God moment, right? On the top of this mountain, they have transformed Jesus. Moses and Elijah are there. And they hear all three of these guys discussing this impending death of Jesus and his resurrection, and the whole thing is punctuated by the father saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then once again, as Jesus has done many times, He tells them, don't say anything about it until after the resurrection. And why? Same reasons. They don't fully understand it yet. If they go start to talk about this gospel and they don't understand the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus, then they're going to be putting people in danger. And the reason would be, you know, it would kind of perhaps maybe inspire some sort of insurrection against Rome and thousands have already died trying to overthrow Rome. But this is not going to be an earthly insurrection Luke tells us, actually, that they did follow his command to not say anything until after the the resurrection. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus says, keep it quiet. But these guys are putting the pieces together, right? They've heard the plan. They're trying to process all of this about a suffering Messiah intellectually, theologically, emotionally. And they're also struggling with their own eschatological puzzle. How does this fit into what they knew about the prophets? I mean, they had, just like I had about the rapture, a very passionate opinion about the coming of Messiah that fit very nicely into their social and political worldview. They associated the coming of Messiah with the resurrection of a government they could be proud of, the whole world could be proud of, and they saw Messiah and Elijah and the government of Rome or Jerusalem all one and the same. And it has been the hope and dream of generations based upon their understanding of what the Old Testament prophets taught about Elijah. There was a timeline they had of expected events, and they were confident in this timeline. But wait a minute. If Jesus is right, and he dies, and he's resurrected, our timeline is wrong. Now they start to think, we've got to reconstruct our eschatology. Something is going on that does not fit with what we thought was supposed to happen. We've got to abandon that. Now we have to figure out how a suffering and dying Messiah fits in with a returning Elijah. So they ask the question, what about Elijah, Jesus? I mean, the scribes tell us that he's supposed to come first and restore all things. They just saw Elijah, remember? So the prophecy of him is at the forefront of their thoughts as they walk down that mountain and they're processing Jesus' message. And the first, most pressing issue for solving this new, troubling, prophetic puzzle is what to do with the resurrection of Elijah. Elijah was like their rapture. You understand that? A dramatic, anticipated moment everyone believed in, and everyone was waiting for. And in these times, what would happen is whenever monarchs would come to a new town or a new city or a new place or a new village, they never came unannounced. They always went to a region. First, they would send a herald so the region would be fully prepared to receive them in comfort and celebration. They would send their forerunner to set things in order with the people for the grand arrival of the king. Elijah is the one expected to come before Messiah. And he is supposed to, according to the prophecy, restore all things. And they interpreted this, by the way, when, when they hear, oh, Elijah's going to come and restore all things, Here, here's what they're really saying. Oh, he's going to end suffering. That's what they associated with the return of Elijah, restoring all things, was he was going to end their political suffering. And the idea of a resurrection wasn't a new one. They've experienced them firsthand, the disciples have, when Jesus resurrected the dead a couple of times. Everyone understood them. Even the liberal Jewish Sadducees, Herod being the chief of them, was fearful that John the Baptist had been resurrected to punish him because he executed him. Remember, he says, who is this Jesus? I think it's John the Baptist come back to kill me after I killed him. But the resurrection they all anticipated was Elijah. He's supposed to come before Messiah and restore all things, set things straight, end suffering. But now Jesus is going to suffer. Something is wrong here. Elijah ends all the suffering, sets up the kingdom, and Messiah comes and gloriously takes the throne. That's what's supposed to happen. How does a suffering Messiah fit into this concept with this messenger? How does that make any sense? They aren't ready to admit that their eschatology is wrong. They're trying to fit Jesus into what they thought they knew of him. They have this confirmation bias about prophecies surrounding Messiah that is proving exceedingly difficult to overcome. And if Jesus is right, they have the wrong political dreams... They have the wrong eschatological dreams, they have the the wrong theological dreams, and they have the wrong Messiah dreams. So their question is legit. Jesus, the experts in the law, say Elijah must return first. Where is Elijah? It's a sincere, passionate, but worrisome question. This is not like some casual conversation. But Jesus, if you're right, if Moses and Elijah on the mountain were right, and Jehovah was right when he told me to shut up and listen, If all that is true, then we've got a problem. So let's talk about the spiritual. What about God or Jesus? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about how Jesus explains what the prophets really meant. I've titled the first part of this section, Elijah the Baptist. Isn't that cool? See, Jesus knows that their question comes out of their passionate yet flawed understanding of the prophecies written in Malachi. Malachi, for some of you that don't know, was the last active voice of God, the last active prophet before a 400-year silent intertestament period between the Old Testament and Jesus. It's the last word. And this is the prophecy that everybody in Israel, all Jews, had been looking for. Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That means that they're going to restore the unity of Israel and everything is going to be all the inheritance of the past, present, and future is all going to come together. He's going to restore all of that. We're going to be a unified nation. And he says he'll restore to their hearts. And if he didn't, here's what says, lest I come and strike the land with a, with a decree of utter destruction. So there's two things there. There's a promise. And then what happens if you don't heed the promise? See, the consequences of not heeding the prophet is utter judgment and destruction. We'll talk more about that later. So Christ teaches them that John the Baptist is actually the fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi that they're discussing. And Isaiah actually further describes this returning Elijah messenger of John the Baptist. Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our god see john the baptist resembled elijah in so many ways he represented him and he resembled him in his task and in his manner which was fearless and even their outward appearance was very similar john the baptist was a messenger the herald sent to restore all things and prepare the way for this suffering messiah And looking back, for us, it's very easy, right, to see how John the Baptist fits into Malachi and Isaiah. He neatly fulfills the prophetic moments that Jesus masterfully teaches the disciples. Elijah did come. He was John the Baptist. And just like they wanted to kill Elijah because he was preaching truth, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill John the Baptist as well. And they did. The strange thing is they were so focused and so anticipated on their view of what a returning Elijah would look like, it happened right under their noses, and they missed it. They missed it. But then Jesus goes further, and he talks about prophetic suffering. He says, yes, John the Baptist was Elijah. He came but those same prophets that you're thinking that said Elijah is supposed to come, don't those same prophets tell you that I am going to suffer? That's the question. He asked them a rhetorical question. He's talking about this in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. <laughs> See, Jesus goes further. Using those same prophets, he also reaffirms the fact, guys, yes, Elijah was John the Baptist, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. The same prophets tell you both. And he asks the questions, don't these same prophets say that I'm supposed to suffer too? Just like they hated Elijah and John the Baptist, they're going to hate me? See, what Jesus does here, guys, is he just relentlessly, can you see this pattern? Relentlessly, time and again, ties his coming, suffering, and death to those same prophets the disciples admired. And slowly, systematically, patiently, lovingly, Jesus is chipping away at all of their reasons for denial about what the gospel really is. <coughs> he is trying to help them move through the stages of grief as they realize what they thought they were waiting for is never coming, and this is what has come. He's removing all the emotional, intellectual, or perceived logical objection that they can have over his pending death and resurrection. So which brings me another question. Why is he talking about death so much? Well, there's a good reason. We're still in the theological section, so bear with me. Death is a universal, inescapable accountability for all of us. Sooner or later, we are all forced to deal with it. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you will face the ultimate accountability. Death forces everyone at some point to face spiritual realities. Why do you think there's so many deathbed confessions? There may not necessarily be deathbed conversions, but there are many deathbed confessions. (coughs) In the end, All of us, whether you're believers in Jesus or not, know that we face an eternal eternal reality of life on earth being over. Even those who don't embrace Jesus face this same accountability. It's why the cross is so crucial to the gospel message that Jesus is bringing. Before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a death. If Jesus doesn't suffer, if there's no death, if there's no cross, then there's also no victory, no forgiveness, no resurrection, no hope, only judgment, as we saw in the Malachi passage. All right. Personal. His sufferings are our sufferings. So this was the... uh, Sunday Sermon Preview this week in the, uh, on social media. How hard do you try to force Jesus to fit your worldview instead of immersing yourself into his? So the first thing I want to bring up is the idea of a softer message. You know, Jesus, week after week, as I'm going through Mark with you, he just keeps hammering suffering and death and death and suffering. And I'm just going to be real with you. Honestly, I'm so tired of preaching it every week. I, I really am. I'm not like a depressing guy. I know I'm, I'm a pretty upbeat guy. And my desire as your pastor is, I would love to come in here every week and encourage you, inspire you, send you off with affirmation. But Jesus keeps saying, nope, we have to suffer just as he did. And as hard as I try, each week I think, okay, this is the week. Last week we started with something cool, right? But it ended bad. I keep running into week after week as I prepare these sermons in the Gospel of Mark into the reality of Jesus talking about his suffering and his death and how it's good news. I mean, let's look at it practically speaking. You guys that have been with me during 7, 8, 9, you know what I'm talking about. How are we supposed to grow our church preaching about death and suffering every week? How is that going to be appealing to anyone? How is that going to draw new people in? Oh, you ought to go to Grace Life. They talk about death and suffering every week. It's awesome. (laughs) Listen, guys, this is a tough, tough series of messages. It's a tough message. It's a tough calling. Everything that Jesus is saying is antithetical to our natural human tendencies and desires for success and happiness, and hope, and peace, and love, and joy. What Jesus says is the exact opposite of what our definitions of success is. So what I do is I just keep waiting for Mark to fit my narrative. One day, I want my sermon, here's my narrative, I want my sermons to be positive for you. I want my sermons to be inspiring, encouraging, but Mark is just not fitting what I want. So what do I do? During this run of the last few months, each week, I actually have to make a decision on Sunday afternoon. I get home, I look at the next passage on Sunday afternoon, I start sermon prep right away. I look at it and I have to make a decision. Do I keep preaching this text? Or maybe just massage the message just a little bit. I got to, am serious, guys. I want you, every week, I look at the next patches. Oh, my gosh, here we go, death and, death and suffering again. <clears throat> but here's why we won't do that. Because it's just like the disciples kept having to hear it, right, over and over and over again, because they had a worldview of Jesus they thought was right. Perhaps we have one that we think is right and is not. So I want to talk about embracing the cross. At some point, we are going to have to relent and give up and embrace suffering. Embrace death. Remember how Jesus told them to keep quiet because they didn't understand the importance of the cross? Remember that? Later we learn the disciples, especially Peter, finally embraced the importance of suffering. And once the disciples fully understood and embraced the cross their voices became extremely powerful. Look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. <coughs> but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You hear, this is Peter. You know who Peter is, the guy who's been getting just an earful every week, right? Rejoice insofar as you, this the one who didn't want to even think about Christ's suffering. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter finally got it, didn't he? He finally understood. And you know, it is so easy for us as Christians to look back at the cross and celebrate all its benefits, right? This symbol of great suffering that just frankly mortified the disciples from beginning to end. But have we truly, fully embraced the reality of Christ's sufferings in our life, particularly what it means for us day to day? Paul lays it out quite clearly, church, what our expectations should be about suffering now and comfort later. That's the order, by the way. Suffering now, comfort later. (coughs) Paul says this to the Philippian church, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Wow. Paul doesn't say, and I'm striving to name it and claim it. I'm going to live the victorious Christian life, do everything right so I can have wealth and riches and prosperity and be respected and admired, have a good reputation, and be a blessing to everyone because I have so much to give. No, he says, I just want to identify with the sufferings of Jesus, and if necessary, even be like him in his death. Why? Because the resurrection of the dead is what I'm really interested in. That's my real passion. I think we secretly still hold out hope, even if we don't want to admit it out loud. I think we still hold out hope somehow that following Jesus will be different for us than it was for them. And frankly, when you look around, the American church particularly is very good at creating slick, topical, earthly messages that downplay the importance of suffering and the cross. Because that's what seems to grow a church these days. And the American church has become quite proficient at teaching people about promises soon to come. If you just follow Jesus... But there is virtually none of that in Jesus' teachings about promises on earth. We talked about Jeremiah 29, 11, didn't we? How people have taken that out of context. None of what Jesus says really has anything to do with anything blessed in this life. He mostly teaches about what? Suffering now and comfort later. Right? Right? I mean, trust me, I wish he didn't, but he does. I love uh, what Paul says here in um, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. See, just like with Jesus, it's in our suffering that we experience the power of the resurrection. Not just in the resurrection itself, but in our authority in being a voice for it. Just like the disciples could not be a voice, be quiet because you don't understand it all. Once they understood suffering, they became an incredibly powerful force for the gospel. Same is true for us. And Jesus clearly says we should expect suffering for his sake. Yet we still, for some reason, guys, we live in this silly denial. At some point, we're going to have to realize that we must arrive at the place Peter and the disciples did ultimately. We must realize the importance of what Paul describes. And we must be content to rejoice in it. We must rejoice because we know our suffering is a sign of the power to come in the resurrection. And when we begin to recognize through the teachings of Jesus that the comfort in this world is a fleeting facade. Did you hear me? The comfort in this world is a fleeting facade and that we're going to have to put all of our hope in what comes after. Heavenly Dad, we confess to you that many times, while we might talk a good game, we really want nothing to do with suffering. We just confess to you ahead of time we're going to do everything we can to avoid it. (laughs) I mean, you've made us that way. We don't want it. But Father, just like the disciples struggled day to day, even after seeing miracles and hearing you speak, they still did not want to embrace the idea of suffering with you. But after a while, they did, and their voice was powerful. I don't know, Lord, if I speak for everyone in our church. I know I speak for myself, and I speak for others. We are willing to rejoice in suffering that makes us more hopeful in the resurrection. We are willing to rejoice in suffering that makes us more powerful with our message on earth. We also confess to you, Jesus, we'd like comfort now. But we know you make no promises of that. But what you do promise us is far greater, which is life in eternity, with you forever. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. Sorry about the technical difficulties earlier with the worship. But uh, I just pray that you guys have a great week. We'll see you next week. If you need anything, let